Okay, so the Morant Bay Rebellion was, uh, I guess to understand the Morant Bay Rebellion, you also have to understand that the history of um, Jamaican labor politics is steeped in slavery itself. So it's hard to understand the Morton Bay Rebellion without also understanding um, the, uh, the Christmas Rebellion. Both of them came out of the perception, at least on the part of exploited workers in Jamaica, that they were, uh, they were on the cusp of receiving a completely different deal, like a different orientation um, with regard to their labor and uh, the British monarchy. So the, uh, the Christmas rebellion came out of the idea that um, there was going to be a broad-based abolition, that, that slavery in Jamaica was going to end. That is absolutely not what happened. Um, there, there were perennial discussions and even votes held um, in, uh, in the British parliament um, on uh, unending slavery that were led by abolitionists, including uh, William Wilberforce, whose name you often hear, uh, in, who, is, uh, who is widely feted um, in the story, um, Amazing Grace. Now, people tend to believe the Amazing Grace story is the story of the end of slavery in Jamaica and in the Caribbean broadly, that is across the British colonies. That's not what that was. It was the end of the slave trade. So there were no longer slaves that were going to be imported uh, from Africa to the colonies, but it didn't end slavery, or at least the practice of uh, uh, forced labor uh, of people that were held as slaves. That didn't end until a number of years later. So the abolishment actually came in 1834. That was, um, that was due to the passage of the Slavery Abolition Act. But um, and it also said that uh, people over the age of six would need to work for a period of four to six years to those who formerly enslaved them. So this was called apprenticeship, but it was slavery by any other name. The system of apprenticeship was not abolished until 1838. So keep in mind, this is the, the very same people that were enslaved um, under that previous, uh, that previous arrangement were still working, those who were previously apprentices were by and large still around by the 1860s. At that time, there were about 2,000 Jamaican men that were of eligible voting age. Women at the time were not able to vote, not white women, not black women, not uh, Indian women, not nobody. The population in Jamaica at the time was about 436,000 people. But the issue, which is unique to uh, not just Jamaica, but the, the, the island colonies, um, which was present in some states, but not present in many states or slave states, was that Black people broadly and Black slaves outnumbered the white population by a, a fair margin. So in Jamaica, the ratio is 32 to 1. So um, in the run-up to uh, the Morton Bay Rebellion, not only do you have people that uh, were promised their freedom in 1834, but did not actually receive it until 1838. So 
This was after a rebellion where people believed, the rebellion uh, in the Christmas of 1831, where people believed that they were to have received some form of manumission by that point already, and that's why they rebelled in the first place. Uh, then they were told, oh yeah, you're free, but you're not free for another four years. And then once that four years comes, they don't receive the full rights and privileges that they ought to have um, on par with white people on the island. They still haven't received that yet. And they far outnumber white people on the island. Now, the Haitian Revolution has already happened by this point. As a matter of fact, the Haitian Revolution um, one, of the, uh, one of the principal conspirators of the Haitian Revolution, Dati Bookman, was a former Jamaican himself. So you get that it's a bit of a slap in the face for uh, Jamaicans who had been um, desiring freedom for decades prior to this, that they're still not respected as self-determined and self-governing people. On top of that, uh, there were floods in 1864 due to heavy, uh, heavy rainfall, uh, and tropical storms, et cetera, that ruined many crops. And what happens when you have a very warm climate that is, um, you know, host to a number of uh, tropical parasites and mosquitoes, et cetera, you have heavy rainfall, you have many marshes in which, say, sugar canes, uh, beets, and other uh, plants that require, are in rice and higher, higher, high amounts of water to grow. Well, then you have um, stagnant ponds that breed even more disease. So on top of that heavy rainfall, then you have uh, plagues of um, yellow fever, you have um, cholera, uh, which will often develop in areas where there's stagnant water that ends up mixing with local sewage. And then on top of that, a new wave of smallpox. And then after the uh, flooding of 1864 and the concomitant diseases that come along with it, then there is a, a drought that follows, almost like some sort of a cosmic joke. So you have all of this water and then diseases that the excess of stagnant water brings. And then once the water dries up, you have a drought. There's not enough water. So this causes uh, sugarcane fields to absolutely spoil. Um, on top of that, many of the, much of the British aristocracy that was making money off of these plantations, well, they were remunerated by uh, the British government. And after that point, many of them pulled up stakes out of Jamaica. They had no reason to continue to be there. So there were people that came in and bought up uh, land and businesses on the cheap as profiteers, but they were still absentee landlords. They didn't necessarily live on the island. And labor conditions did not improve because there was no human investment. There was no reason for people to care what actually happens on the island. What they care about is their ledgers. Is uh, this investment producing a profit for me? Well, after a couple of disastrous years, why would they want to sink any additional money into the island? Why is anybody advocating for anybody on the island? Uh, this brings about several bankruptcies. Now, the sugar industry, um, as being uh, derived from sugar cane, was already on the downswing. Uh, much of the, the crop planting was moving towards coffee, but Jamaica hadn't yet, uh, like many other um, islands and like uh, you know areas in Africa, um, begun to replace its sugar crop with coffee crop. I even hate had actually gotten in on this action that uh, coffee was uh, becoming a, a major uh, a major cash crop. So along with uh, the sudden bankruptcies, poor labor conditions, poor health conditions, uh, and then on top of that, uh, you know the uh, the poverty not just of black people that live on the island, but 
um, you know, people that were formerly employees of these plantation estates, uh, people that may have even been uh, tenant owners, uh, this increases tensions between everybody. And the idea that uh, many uh, freed Black people got into their head was that conditions in Jamaica were worsening to the extent that slavery may be reintroduced. So um, in 1865, uh, the Secretary of the Baptist Missionary Society of Great Britain um, writes a letter. So the, the name of the secretary is Dr. Edward Underhill. He writes a letter to uh, the colonial office in London to talk about how badly things are going for the Jamaican people. Uh, that letter was, uh, came, that letter came to the attention of Jamaica's governor, John Eyre. And uh, as has happened uh, many times previously um, and under uh, different administrations, the governor of Jamaica sees the letter uh, talking about how badly things are going. And it's, it's an embarrassment to them. Um, both in front of their peers, uh, in front of and in front of the crown, um, to have things described in such uh, uh, such dire terms, and he just completely denies that any of that is true. Oh no, it's a complete fabrication. But the uh, the issue is that uh, Jamaica's black population also finds out that this letter exists, and they know that what is described in the letter is absolutely true. So they begin organizing meetings, um, not only to uh, let people know the absolute truth of what the conditions are on the island and to be able to organize among themselves, but also organizing for the possibility of a reinstitution of slavery. This is not unprecedented. Um, one of the reasons that the Haitian Revolution went from a uh, revolution of slaves to complete self-determination on the island, so not simply abolition of slavery on the island, but a, a declaration of complete independence from France itself, was because um, the British invaded Saint-Domingue and proceeded to, in areas where they were able to win battles and reconquer territory, they re-enslaved people. So it was already known uh, that, uh, that, um, that Henry Dundas was no fan of abolition. And as long as that strain of politics existed, as long as Dundas was alive and as long as the strain of, strain of politics that Dundas promulgated would exist, the threat of slavery would always be ever-present. Uh, so uh, there were uh, there were meetings that were organized um, both for the purpose of uh, labor activism and for the purpose of um, fighting a possible reintroduction of slavery. There was a petition that was sent to uh, Queen Victoria asking for islands um, in the vicinity that belonged to the crown uh, that they would be able to cultivate because much of the land in Jamaica was spoiled due to uh, the flooding and then the subsequent drought what they wanted to do was um, have additional lands that they could plant for themselves. That petition actually went to uh, Governor Ayer first, and he, uh, he added his own commentary to the letter. The Queen's reply to that um, was, uh, was made known to the residents of the island, and uh, many believed when the Queen denied the request uh, to make crown lands available for additional planting, that Governor Eyre, having added his own commentary to the letter that they had sent, uh, that his opinion was more influential than theirs. So you have this massive tension between black planters and white planters. You have a massive tension you know, between black workers and white workers, but also towards enmity towards the crown 
emanated towards Jamaica's governor. So you have uh, a people that is essentially um, has a body politic, but no official representation. Now in uh, St. Anne, so St. Anne Parish was uh, the parish that had originally sent uh, the petition to Queen Victoria, which came under the auspices of Governor Eyre, and then he had his commentary and so on. Um, the uh, the um, the response uh, causes people in uh, St. Thomas Parish or St. Thomas uh, St. Thomas. Uh, the the residents of the St. Thomas Parish um, are widely encouraged to uh, bring their grievances not just to the governor, not just to the queen, but the British public at large and to the Jamaican public at large. So this is no longer a matter between local organizers and the governor and the queen. This is an island-wide matter. So it's not local organizing happening clandestinely or in secret. This is now a public campaign to advocate and agitate for better labor conditions. There is, at the time, a, uh, a deacon by the name of Paul Bogle. <clears throat> um, and uh, Paul Bogle is, the, is himself um, descended from a slave family, uh, and Bogle's ancestors were enslaved by the Scots. Uh, Bogle himself, in 1865, um, leads a delegation of uh, St. Thomas uh, parishioners to Spanish town in the idea that uh, they would be able to meet with John Eyre to hash these issues out and perhaps to be able to settle their differences and advocate for better uh, labor conditions. Because without the ability to get the governor on their side, then whatever labor action that they take is going to end up being stymied by the governor and the governor's opinion can color the queen's opinion. And with, without being able to, uh, I guess, like pull the governor over to their way of thinking, or at least to be able to manage some sort of a compromise, labor conditions are never going to improve because the queen is going to listen to the governor. The queen's not going to listen to the people. <clears throat> uh, at the time, Governor Eyre declines to meet with the parishioners, um, does not listen to them. They're sent home. Later on that year, in October of the same year, 1865, um, a, a black man is uh, placed on trial <clears throat> for the crime of trespassing. And the, the parishioners uh, in Morton Bay are obviously angry with this because the idea that a, a person can be charged with trespassing on a plantation that essentially is left derelict. There's nobody managing the, the plantation. There is no crops going on the plantation. There are no workers on the plantation. It's somebody who simply treaded on land that on paper belongs to somebody else, but in practice is a, a field left fallow. Um, they, uh, the parishioners in the area, march on the courthouse along with uh, Paul Bogle himself uh, to protest uh, the trial against somebody who's essentially being uh, politically persecuted. One of the uh, the members of the uh, of the crowd um, publicly uh, or makes a speech against the charges, and because he sold uh, loudly and vociferously, um, I, I guess like uh, 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 denounced the charges brought against his fellow man. Um, he's seized by police. And he's, uh, he's beaten up, he's beaten with truncheons, 
Um, he's not jailed, but he is sent home in a, in a pretty sore condition. Uh, the, uh, the man uh, who was uh, beaten up is also himself at a later point uh, prosecuted. He's also imprisoned. This leads to a small, I wouldn't say exactly a riot, but there is a disturbance. There's some scuffling in the crowd. Uh, so some, some additional people, uh, when they see the, the treatment of one of the other uh, protesters being beaten up and then later being dragged off uh, for his own prosecution, uh, they're also, uh, they get upset about this and, and they begin um, uh, scuffling with police as well. Once the scuffle uh, erupts into a very small brawl, um, and it's uh, resolved, an arrest warrant is issued for Paul Bogle, <coughs> who is um, named as the one who incites the riot. But because uh, the, uh, the parishioners led by Paul Bogle um, get between police and Bogle himself, he's not arrested. Bogle returns a few days later on the, the 11th of October, and they all march uh, to Morant Bay. And they're not this time around they're not marching peacefully this time around they're marching with weapons and they are prepared for all-out war and uh when they get there they are met by um local police uh court officials and uh people that were drawn from nearby um plantations and uh the uh the parishioners to as i said were prepared for uh, a fight this time uh, begin throwing rocks and whatever other objects they have available to them um, at this local volunteer militia. And in response, the local volunteer militia opens fire on, on the parishioners. This leads to everything going completely out of control. Um, a massive brawl ensues. Uh, machetes and cleavers are, are drawn, cutlasses are drawn, shots are fired. And in the ensuing uh, melee, the courthouse is burnt down altogether. This then spreads throughout the entire parish, uh, and it's known as the, uh, the Morant Bay Rebellion. What happens after the fact is that uh, the governor uh, now gets involved and uh, um, calls upon the brigadier general. Uh, his name was Alexander Nelson. And it's Nelson's charge to hunt down anybody that took part in the insurrection, anybody who sheltered those who took part in the insurrection, anybody who led it, anybody who's associated with it, and to, uh, to bring them back to Morton Bay for justice, along with Paul Bogle himself. There was no massive resistance to this um, because it was not widely organized. So unlike uh, the, uh, the Christmas Rebellion of 1831, there isn't massive organization against the, uh, the possibility of an island or uh, again, against the possibility of an island-wide rebellion that's met with uh, force from the, uh, the British Navy itself. This is a ragtag group of people that originally went. Uh, yeah, so this is not an organized rebellion. This originally began as a protest. It's, it was church parishioners and locals. It was never meant to get out of control like this. So there isn't massive resistance uh, to... Uh, the Brigadier General's troops rounding people up, rounding up anybody who's rumored to be associated with uh, with the uprising, um, or associated or rumored to be associated with Paul Bogle himself. Everybody are simply, uh, you know, their their homes are raided, they're they're dragged out of their houses, they're dragged off the fields and brought to uh, to Morton Bay for justice. And what happens is that uh, people are quickly tried 
and executed en masse. It was one of the largest mass killings in uh, Jamaican history. So what happens is in response to this small outbreak of violence, which leads to a larger outbreak of violence, 439 Jamaicans are executed summarily. Um, and that's not Jamaican men, that's Jamaican men, women, and children all. An additional 350 odd people, including uh, Paul Bogle, were arrested and without undergoing a trial, um, most of them were executed. Paul Bogle himself, um, within 24 hours of his arrest, was also executed. He was hanged. Um, he was hanged alongside 14 people. His brother Moses, who had no part in the rebellion, was also hanged. On top of this, um, 600, again, men, women, and children were flogged. And flogging doesn't simply mean, you know, uh, taking the lash as, I don't know, one, one sees in like uh, uh, pirate movies or anything of the sort. Like their skin is excoriated from their bodies. Uh, many more are sentenced to, uh, to prison sentences um, the people who are, who are arrested and executed, uh, their homes are burned, so their families no longer have a place to live. Their fields are burned as well. Um, this ends up becoming one of the largest uh, mass punishments, not only in Jamaican history, um, but in the history of the islands. And what happens after that is that there was a call um, by the Jamaica Committee um, in December of 1865 uh, calling on Governor Eyre to be tried for mass murder. Um, in 1866, August of 1866, uh, there was a defense committee uh, created to support Governor Eyre uh, because it seems that he may end up being um, brought to trial uh, for his actions. And when, the, uh, when there is a motion to, uh, to charge him with mass murder, the grand jury declines to indict Governor Eyre. Then there was a subsequent lawsuit um, on behalf of uh, the people of Morant Bay against the governor. Uh, the lawsuit also subsequently fails. Um, so even though he is brought to trial, uh, brought to a civil trial, um, nothing happens to him. Uh, the lawsuit is decided in his favor, so he neither faces uh, civil penalties nor criminal penalties uh, for, the, for the events. So the only consequence of this is that uh, Governor Eyre is removed as Jamaica's governor, and then uh, John Peter Grant is brought in as uh, governor of Jamaica in August of 1866. That is the only subsequent, um, uh, there's, there's no real penalty aside from him losing his position uh, to a successor, and that was pretty much it. How did this, like, did it, beyond the, the removing of the governor, uh, how did it affect like labor structures within Jamaica? So are, can we see like any long-term change in the, the structure of labor coming out of this? Well, uh, the structure of labor in Jamaica um, has essentially always been with aristocrats. And after, um, after the aristocratic class essentially pulls stakes out of Jamaica, it has always been with the, uh, with the bourgeoisie of Jamaica. So, the working class in Jamaica has almost never had a chance. Um, the, uh, the 1938 rebellion that you referred to earlier uh, does not result in better, uh, does not result in uh, much better labor conditions. It does not result in uh, self-determination for Jamaica. It does not result in any form of, I, I would say like a, a socialist or even social democratic victory for Jamaica. Um, 
because it, it has been historically a country that ha that has heavily been um, managed and controlled um, by uh, like the, uh, the bourgeois, the petty bourgeois and uh, collaborators, um, the working class in Jamaica, having been um, one of Britain's most profitable colonies uh, and controlled by um, by a planting class from afar um, has had very few shots at uh, at becoming a worker-led state. That thank you so much. That that is a good like clarification on that point. Um, I guess I, like my last question would be the kind of the legacy of this uprising today in Jamaica um, and like how these uprisings are interpreted um, in history and what inspiration they give with respect to like ongoing anti-colonial struggle in Jamaica today? Oh my goodness. Uh, you know, Jamaica is, uh, I mean, coming from, from a Jamaican background myself, you know, we're a proud and stiff necked people, you know, we're, we're a proud and stubborn people and we revere our heroes as flawed as they may be. So for example, uh, you know, Queen Nanny, um, the uh, you know the the leader of um, the the Moorish people of Moortown, or the uh, the the Maroons of Moortown, um, you know my great grandfather's ancestry comes from Moortown, and there's uh, stories passed down not only in my family but on that entire side of the island about uh, how great and heroic a figure Queen Nanny was, even though. Um, the Maroons, having fought the British to uh, protracted losses and occasionally to standstills, um, were also complicit in the uh, bringing, uh, bringing about a fairly quick end to the Christmas Rebellion of 1831. So they actually sided with the British against uh, the slaves that, that rose up against uh, colonial masters in 1831. Um, but Samuel Sharp, uh, who led the uh the christmas rebellion or some refer to the baptist rebellion is also a nationally revered figure and so resistance to um conditions of oppression um resistance to uh racism resistance to uh colonialism is practically imprinted in our dna the 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 downside is that conditions for jamaica have rarely been such where even with mass mobilization on the island uh, to be able to move from um, mobilization to full-on organization into a worker-led rebellion, even though this has um, at various points been attempted to varying degrees of success on other Caribbean islands, um, has, not, like, has not fully developed in Jamaica, uh, with one of the reasons being that the resources are so heavily oriented against workers and because outside entities uh, such as you know, such as Great Britain, but as well, the United States, Canada, et cetera, um, have used their uh, trade leverage, their economic leverage, um, and the threat of military force uh, to keep those worker-led conditions from fully being realized. One of I think the most recent examples of this is. Uh, the leadership of Portia Simpson Miller, who was twice Jamaica's prime minister. And one of the, the major fears in uh, Portia Simpson Miller's first term is that she will be rabidly anti-American and that she represents a threat not only to um, 
U.S. political hegemony in, in the Caribbean and British political uh, hegemony in the Caribbean, but could also um, lead a movement to turn Jamaica into a republic. And what you find from uh, what you find from people that were even in Portia Simpson Miller's own party is that she's denounced as uh, being gully. She's denounced as being um, low class, boorish. Her language is not articulated. She is not a she's not the type of leader that Jamaica needs. She's she's unrefined, inarticulate. All all sorts of ways to basically say that she's not one of the good ones. That she's she's a lower class person, even though the root of Portia Simpson Miller's politics. Uh, has always been, and I would say to this day, still remains with Jamaican workers. So it's it's not so much a lack of willingness on the part of Jamaican workers. Um, it's more so that there has been both internal and external sabotage to prevent a Jamaican worker state from ever fully emerging. The legacy of Paul Bogle as well today in Jamaica, and, and I know he's the national hero of Jamaica as well, but how has he been kind of interpreted as an anti-colonial hero and an anti-colonial figure i mean you know he's on paul bogle is on uh jamaican banknotes there are any number of uh stories and mythologies that surround him as a person um if you go to the morton bay courthouse you'll find a, a figure of uh paul bogle uh, right out front so he's he's a larger than life figure much as samuel sharp and queen nanny are larger than larger than life figures um and as uh disparate as some of the stories might be um, it, there is a strain of uh, highly respecting and revering uh, people that have stood up against Babylon, you know, stood up against uh, the, the, the wickedness of, of the crown, uh, of uh, the overseers, people who represent the crown, i.e. Uh, the, uh, the governor general, um, the, the, the court system, even police, um, all that bears sort of the, uh, the name and image of uh, Jamaica's colonial past. That you'll find among your typical Jamaican worker. But the issue is that Jamaica is heavily um, unequal in terms of resources, land, um, and uh, allocation of labor profits. Um, it has, for the most part, ended up in the hands of uh, bourgeois collaborators, <clears throat> and much of Jamaica's profit leaves the island. And one thing that has happened in the mid 20th century, and this is drawing on, you know, from, from what I know, it's not something that I've, I would say, studied anywhere nearly as deeply as I have 19th century Jamaican history, but that Jamaica's economy, um, which used to be uh, a, a, a rather diverse economy, uh, from agriculture to minerals and exports uh, to finished products, um, it becomes slowly a mono economy that's almost entirely dependent on tourism. So it's, it's uh, the industrialization or the, the, the move towards industrialization of Jamaica is completely hollowed out um, towards its, uh, well, they call it independence, but, you know, becoming a Commonwealth um, island rather than a, uh, a colony. Um, when they, when they win, uh, when they win independence, um, by the time that actually happens, the move towards industrialization of Jamaica um, has begun to peter out. And there is a, uh, there's a gradual process by which um, all of their local and like highly treasured commodities um, become redundant because agricultural goods, uh, not just, uh, you know, 
uh, uh, staple crops, but also uh, items like uh, dairy um, and also fruit and vegetables. I mean, uh, they're they're receiving imports from the United States that's even cheaper than you can purchase it in Jamaica, which puts Jamaican farmers out of business, which is one of the reasons why my family is here in Canada, as well as in the United States and the UK. And uh, mining begins to peter out as well. By the 1980s, um, these industries are all but exhausted. And so with Jamaica being so heavily dependent on outside dollars coming in, uh, both from remittances and from tourism, such as it is, uh, it finds itself as a country that is approaching uh, very close to the conditions that Haiti experiences, where an outsized portion of its GDP depends on outside dollars coming in rather than uh, money being generated from within. And the people that uh, are able to capture the profits um, out of this, uh, this, this monoculture, this, uh, this, this mono economy, um, are people that own tourist resorts, uh, people that own private beaches, etc. So uh, it's not for nothing that uh, it's, uh, its largest publication, the Jamaica Observer, is founded by the very same men that founded Sandals Resorts. Um, and the, you know, everything from uh, the, uh, the Jamaican uh, media, uh, to its, uh, its highest uh, and most profitable industries um, to its largest landowners are a coterie of the very same people. Well, thank you so much for explaining a little bit more about, about the uh, uprising and, and the figure of Paul Bogle as well as how it relates to modern anti-colonialism in Jamaica. Um, I really appreciate it. I didn't, I didn't really know um, a lot about, I had heard of Paul Vogel before, but I didn't really know a lot about the actual uprising he was involved in and, and just how significant it is in Jamaica. So I, I learned a lot. So thank you so much. Oh yeah, no problem. No problem. Um, it, yeah. If you, uh, if you want to have a look at um, the, uh, the Morton Bay courthouse, I mean, you know, you'll, you'll find a, um, a rather like striking figure. Uh, I don't know that I'm the biggest fan of it. In fact, mm -hmm. I don't know. Like, mm -hmm. you, you can have a look at yourself, but uh you know, when it was, when, when the statue was unveiled, and this is in like 1965, this was on the, uh, the hundredth anniversary of uh, the Morant Bay uprising. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the, uh, the, the statue was unveiled in front of the very same, uh, I mean, it was rebuilt, but uh, the courthouse was, uh, was burnt down. And uh, the uh, prime minister at the time, uh, Donald Sangster was uh, there for the, un the unveiling of it. Um, but I guess the, uh, I, the 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 figurine itself was uh, sculpted by Edna Madney, the the wife of, um, uh, the wife of the uh, the, the former prime minister, um, and it it looks as if, uh, it's, um, it looks as if it's like a a a slave type of figure. You know, he's uh, he's shirtless, he's uh, he's wearing like uh, linen trousers. Um, but it actually, like, Bogle's figure in the statue is more reminiscent to me of Samuel Sharp than even, than even Samuel Sharp. So um, it's, it's interesting how, like, the, uh, that Bogle as a figure is so widely revered, and yet the statue that was made to his honor um, is more reminiscent of Samuel Sharp. And the reason, the reason that I have mixed feelings about it is because I wonder what it was that... Um, Edna Manley was thinking about when she when she made the statue, um, and Nor Norman Manley was there for the uh, he was there for the for the commemoration as well, and I'm 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 wondering to myself, is it a testament to Paul Bogle himself, 
or is it a testament to, as I said before, the stubbornness and stiff neckness of Jamaican people um, that have that uh, that came up from slavery and won their freedoms from slavery, not simply by you know the uh, the writ of a benevolent British who felt badly about the slave trade, but were essentially forced into a position where if they had continued to face these perennial uprisings in Jamaica, the planters definitely would have gone bankrupt. Um, if it's a if it's a testament to the uh, the the Jamaican character that is in a state of perpetual in a state of constant rebellion, so it, it to me it came across as not only a testament to Paul Bogle himself, but to the spirit of Samuel Sharp and others that have throughout Jamaican history um, resisted in whatever means necessary, whether through peaceful action or violent struggle um, against their own oppression. But I, I, would, I would encourage you, I mean, you know, go, go look up like a photo of Paul Bogle and then go check out the statue. And then you tell me if there was, if there was some, I guess like possible inspiration for the way that the statue looks other than the visage of Paul Bogle himself. I, my very last question would be like any good books to read on the subject to learn more about the history of, of uprisings in Jamaica. Oh yeah, there are many. Um, there's, let's see. Uh, there are some books that I have like some issues with. Um, there's books like testing the chains. Um, by uh, Michael Creighton, which uh, it's not just a history of um, slavery resistance in Jamaica, but throughout the West Indies um, altogether. Uh, there's a very good book by Sasha Turner uh, called Contested Bodies. And this talks about um, uh, slavery in Jamaica and resistance to slavery in Jamaica, but also how slavery and resistance to it is formulated around women's bodies, especially uh, pregnant women and around mothers. Um, and motherhood. Um, there are um, historical books that you can pick up uh, from uh, various archives. One of them is uh, a, uh, a, 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 I guess, like a, a series of notes that was put together by the publisher Wiley, and it was edited by M.W. McCahill. It's called The Correspondence of Stephen Fuller from 1788 to 1795, Jamaica, the West India Interest at Western, Westminster, and the Campaign to Preserve the Slave Trade. Um, there's Mavis C. Campbell's The Maroons of Jamaica, 1655 to 1796. Uh, there is um, uh, T.M. Devine's uh, collection, Recovering Scotland's Slavery Past, The Caribbean Connection. It's, uh, Trevor Bernard, Mastery, Tyranny, and Desire. Um, forgot that one off the top of my head. I'm, I'm really conflicted about that one because uh, while accurate, I think it is, I don't know, in, in, a way, in some ways licentious. Um, and making excuses for um, for plantation overseers that uh, in in some ways he talks about like uh, there being liberties taken with women slaves and to me it's just it's straight up rape so I think I think uh, yeah I think in many ways like Bernard's um, books on Jamaica are they lean a little bit towards apologia uh, I'm not I'm not the biggest fan of them um, but a really really good one I was saving this one for last which I think you would really like, is um, a book by Vincent Brown. Uh, Vincent Brown is a, is a Harvard scholar, um, and it's called Tacky's Revolt. And Tacky's Revolt doesn't just uh, talk about a rebellion of slaves in Jamaica. What Tacky's Revolt does is situate um, 
slave rebellion in Jamaica as a war within a war within a war. So many people think of like slave uprisings as simple like uprisings against the, the conditions of slavery and oppression and so on. But Taki's revolt is also taking place during the course of major European war uh, for which the, uh, the colonies played a major proxy. But uh, people also sometimes forget that uh, Africans who are kidnapped and brought to the Caribbean as slaves, they don't just simply end up there. It's not as if uh, you know slave catchers from Europe just show up in Africa, go out, catch some slaves, and then bring them back. There's war happening between multiple African kingdoms. And the prisoners of those war, the spoils of that war, they're sold off uh, for the profit of those kingdoms to continue to wage their wars. So what Taki's revolt does is not only give you um, the anatomy of a slave revolt, it gives you the anatomy of warfare leading to that slave revolt and where it is situated both chrono chronologically and geographically. Uh, and I, I think it's one of the best books on slave rebellions that you will ever read. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um, I, I appreciate talking to you and thank you for the book recommendations as well. I'm definitely gonna check those out. Um, I do have to run, but yeah, I'm, in, I'm definitely gonna stay in touch and uh, I'll send you the video when we upload it. Thanks so much, I really appreciate it. All right, take care, Joseph. All right, bye, thank you. Bye.